Weighted Blankets, Asexuality, and Science. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Well, welcome back to Ask Science Mike. This is a weekly podcast where we believe that every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. I'm Mike McCarg, the Science Mike of the title, and this is a show where we explore curiosity together. We believe that learning is important, especially in those times when our questions might be taboo or go against, you know, some ideal of a given community. It is important that we are able to learn because learning helps us to grow. And as we grow as people, we're not only able to live more satisfying lives, but we're able to help create a better society together. So that's what this show is about. And I'm just so glad that you have joined us this week. Um, and, what, you know, not a lot of announcements this week. We are in pandemic land. Uh, so I don't have any events to share with you as that is not a thing right now. Uh, but I do want you to know, I do have a, a new book out. It's called You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass that has really been doing well, especially as an audio book. Uh, I've loved getting your cards and notes and letters about your experiences with the book. Uh, it was very hard to launch a book in a pandemic, but this book ended up being so accidentally timely and helpful for all that we're facing right now together because it is a book not only that encourages you by helping you understand everything that's wonderful and amazing about you as a person and you as a human being, but also helping us to understand and cope with thoughts and feelings and behaviors that we don't want, that we don't desire, and that frustrate us. And uh, so you can learn all about that book by going to AskScienceMike.com slash new book. And that'll take you to information about uh, about my my new book. Uh, just came out in April. You're a miracle and a pain in the ass. So we've had a couple weeks here talking about COVID nineteen in a row. So this week, take a deep breath. We're not doing any COVID talks this week. <laughs> so um, you know that's a good, that's a good thing. Another thing, if you're not on my email list, think about going to my website. Uh, AskScienceMike.com or MikeMcArg.com, either one, and signing up for my email list because I have some news I'll be sharing there soon, either there or on Patreon. And if I'm saying news and you're feeling a tightness in your body and it makes you nervous, don't worry. What I'm talking about is uh, the impending launch of a new project that I've been putting together that has really come along. Uh, I'll let you in on a little secret. I did a show pilot for a new video program that would air on YouTube and uh, other platforms and uh, did a, a test run, a pilot episode for the patrons, learned a lot, got a really, got a lot of great notes and great feedback from the Ask Science Mike patrons. And so we've taken those insights and retold it and we're going to launch a new show uh, very soon that I'm just, I'm just totally psyched about. I have been studying and working and learning all about cameras and lights and 
all the things that I'll have to do myself because we're in a pandemic. And, you know, it's been really fun to figure out how to collaborate on a show together with people while social distancing and physical distancing. Uh, I'll have lots of stories to tell there. Uh, I'll tell you one really fun one was working with a director over a video chat to try to figure out how to handle the lighting and camera setup. Um, that was a wild time, I'm telling you. We will have lots of stories, all of us, about COVID-19 and what this has been like for all of us. And some of those stories are fun. Not all of those stories are sad or difficult. And I wonder if maybe sometimes it would do us well for our own mental health to simply remember those things that have been fun or interesting or unique in this very difficult period in history. So related to that, there will soon be a new thing you can do on AskScienceMike.com, and that will be sending in video questions, and we will need your video questions uh, because, you know, people want to see your face when you ask a question. Uh, now, now listen, uh, I, I, I can hear the panic because sometimes people ask questions they don't want people to know they're asking on this program. We're always going to take email questions. We're always going to dig into difficult topics on any program that I make. So don't worry, that'll be there too. But if you're asking a question that like, you don't mind putting your face on, uh, it certainly would be a fun way to contribute. So watch out for that and continue to send in your questions as always via AskScienceMike.com where you can send in today a voicemail question or an email question, and then soon in the future, a video question as well. Ooh, so fancy. Okay, well, what do you say? Let's get it started. Hey, Mike. I'd love to hear what you've got for us on the topic of weighted blankets. My light Googling suggests science supports their usefulness for folks with sensory processing conditions, but has less to say about their usefulness for folks with mental health conditions. Like you, I live with CPTSD, and like so many of us these last few weeks, I find myself without access to a lot of my usual sources of comfort, and that's led me to consider this option as a possible tool in my collection. Um, and I know that you like to stick to studies and facts where you can, but I thought given your various health issues, this might have been something that you'd given a try. So if you've got some, I'd be so happy to hear your anecdotal evidence as well. Thanks so much for your work, which has been really meaningful and valuable valuable to me for years now. Y'all are just so smart because, and it's a problem. It's a problem that you all are so smart because you, your questions, you take all the stuff I would say in an intro. <laughs> so because you've already done some Googling, you have a lot of insight on weighted blankets. Well, maybe we could catch everyone else up, but um, that's what I guess what we'll have to do. Here's the, here's the takeaway. For weighted blankets. I'll go straight to the takeaway and then give the, the support case after that. The takeaway is people who have weighted blankets love them and they feel like they are highly effective and that means something. That's adults and children. Uh, that's people who need them for sleep. That's people who need them uh, for physical health challenges and mental health challenges. They are well loved and that's supported by studies. Um, when people have them, they like them, they feel like they help. It's also true that there's a very clear hypothesis about why weighted blankets should work. And that hypothesis is that they work similarly to deep 
high-touch pressure therapy. Uh, that is a type of uh, physical therapy uh, that's often used in occupational therapy, especially for people with autism. Um, that has been demonstrated to be an effective treatment uh, for some aspects of autism and perhaps ADHD as well. And um, based on the findings of deep touch pressure therapy, weighted blankets have been used by occupational therapists for some time, especially for children with autism, uh, but other, other case profiles as well. But that's where the good news kind of ends, because although we understand why they should work, we do not have studies about whether they work or not. And it's not that we have studies that are uh, say they're bad or they don't work. We just don't have studies really at all. We have a few studies funded by weighted blanket manufacturers. And that immediately, when we see a study funded by a manufacturer of a product about a product category, any discerning science-loving person should look at those studies with a long eye and say, I'm not so sure about that. Because uh, obviously there's a high chance for bias there. So, gosh, what do we do? Uh, well, if there's very few independent studies, um, we look at what are the potential risks. And the risks of weighted blankets seem to be to small children. Blankets that are too heavy for very young children, 10 or on, under, can be dangerous. There have been a couple of deaths from weighted blankets involving uh, children under 10 and infants. So there's our risk, which means if... Uh, you know, you have a small child in your home, you would want to be careful letting them what play with or use a weighted blanket. For adults, gosh, they, they're just, we cannot, I could not find any, any possible downside. So where I'm at with different interventions that aren't yet, don't, don't have the science behind them yet, if they're harmless and people like them, they're great. <laughs> So what have I seen? We do have studies. These things are wildly popular. People who have them swear by them. I do not have a weighted blanket. I have thought about it. Absolutely. I just haven't gotten one yet because you know me. I'm science Mike. I want some studies. And they're expensive. Um, but gosh, if, they're, if they have no risk and people who have them enjoy them, then enjoy one. You know, because here's the thing. Enjoyment is an effective treatment option for mental health challenges, right? One of the ways I have been coping with my CPTSD is making cocktails. Um, that is not a low-risk coping strategy. Uh, we understand that there's it elevates my risk for diabetes and unhealthy weight gain, and also uh, frequent alcohol consumption is associated with increased cancer rates. Like. That's not a good coping strategy. I enjoy it. It's something to do. Uh, but it's not a good coping strategy. It has what very, very potential, very serious potential health consequences. But a weighted blanket doesn't have that. So I would say, like, the anecdotes are enough here because what? You don't have to, like, believe woo to, to use a weighted blanket, um, which is one thing I look out for. And there's there's no downside. I'm kind of that way with essential oils, by the way. Essential oils are based on total woo. Like, there's not good science there. 
but as long as people don't buy into the like diluting an essence makes it stronger part of an essential oil, if essential oils make you feel good, man, use your essential oils all day long, you know, like great. I love it. Um, I don't personally love it. They make me sneeze, but if other people like essential oils, enjoy your essential oils. And I would certainly put weighted blankets in a category above essential oils in terms of the theory of action. Uh, it is possible at some point we could get studies that show what that weighted blankets um, work as well as people believe that they work, or even if they don't work as well as people believe, are still effective. Um you know, and it's not just the public that loves their weighted blankets. I've seen uh, doctors and, and therapists and occupational therapists also say that these are invaluable tools in their arsenal. So uh, as long as it's not putting you in uh, dire straits financially to get one, and as long as you're controlling for the risk factor for small children and infants, then absolutely, I think a weighted blanket could be a great tool in your mental health toolbox. What if I told you that there was a way to get the mental health support that you need to thrive from the comfort of your own home? Well, then my sponsor, BetterHelp, would mean that I could tell you absolutely there is. Uh, I'm so proud to have BetterHelp be a part of this program and making it possible because BetterHelp is an online counseling service with over 10 thousand licensed therapists where over a million people have signed up to get online therapy. I love it. I don't have to find a parking space. I don't have to drive across town. And in this time when we're social distancing, I can continue to get the therapy that helps me face my life challenges. BetterHelp is affordable. It's a low flat fee for unlimited counseling via text and regular phone or video chat appointments with your therapist. It's effective because it's actual therapy here. It's convenient because you get to be at a time and place of your choosing and a pace of therapy that works for you. And it is professional. You are working with licensed, accredited professionals. Uh, the way it works is you go to betterhelp.com slash science mic where you get 10% off your first month's uh, service. And they'll, uh, after you fill out a little questionnaire, the team at BetterHelp will connect you with a counselor that you're going to love. And if for some reason it doesn't work, and it doesn't always work, not every patient is compatible with every therapist, BetterHelp can assign you to a new therapist for no extra cost and no extra effort on your part. So why not join the over 1 million people who decided to get help and feel better? by going to betterhelp.com slash science mic today. Our next question came in via email and it reads, hello, science Mike. I have a question that has been on my mind for quite some time, but I've not been able to find many books or articles talking about it. Maybe I'm just bad at searching, but I feel confident that my question is safe here. So I decided to send it your way. I have recently realized that I am asexual, but I have trouble finding pride in embracing that identity because I wonder if my orientation is mostly a result of my traumatic upbringing. I was raised by extremely fundamentalist parents. My father was our pastor and my mother homeschooled us. Sexuality was not talked about ever 
It was so taboo that it was treated as almost non-existent. Anything remotely connected to sexuality was simply silenced. For this reason, I came to the realization of my orientation in a backward fashion. First, in college Bible study groups, hearing that other people struggled with sexual feelings, and later coming to believe that sexual feelings were natural and healthy, but knowing I still not did not have them. The fact that my childhood friend, who comes from a similar background, also considers herself asexual, adds to my theory that we may have been somehow conditioned to be this way. I mean, what are the chances that we would both just happen to be asexual? So my question is, do you know of any studies or other writings about asexuality and trauma and how they may influence each other? Can your orientation come about as a reaction from external sources, or is that not how it works? Could it be some of both? I guess this boils down to a nature versus nurture question, so there may be no answer to my question. However, I so appreciate your work and insight into human stories that I would love to hear any thoughts you may have. Thank you so much for just being you, Ellen. Well, Ellen, the first thing I would like to say is that I am sorry for what you faced in your life, the challenges in your family system and in the culture that you grew up in that has caused the process of you growing to understand yourself and your sexuality to be challenging and fraught with difficulty. Another thing I'd like to say before we dig into your question is that you're not alone here. There's not only a lot of LGBTQ plus folks that listen to Ask Science Mike. There's a lot of specifically asexual people. And so, you might, I saw in your question this notion of how likely could it be that this friend and I both just happen to be asexual. Well, I would tell you that I've talked to hundreds of people in this audience who identify as asexual. That it's common that a lot of people identify as asexual. It's not bad or wrong or strange. And so as we kind of dig through these questions that you've asked, can asexuality be related to trauma? Absolutely. Sure. Does that mean asexuality is not real or always related to trauma? Absolutely not. I think maybe let's talk about orientation in general before we return to some of your specific questions. Because when we talk about nature versus nurture, number one, those questions are always complicated. And number two, they are irrelevant in matters of our sexuality. I believe they are utterly irrelevant. Why? Because our orientation the label, the ideas, the metaphors we use to relate to the ways that we experience sexual arousal, sexual attraction, and sexual intimacy. It's our orientation is the way we relate to our sexuality. It is the means by which we understand and know ourselves. Your sexuality is about you. It's about you understanding you. 
It's about you being empowered by you. So guess what? You get to label yourself in the way that feels best or most right or most accurate for you, regardless of how it works. And guess what else? You and anyone else can change the label they apply to their sexual orientation at any time for any reason. Research tells us that people's sexuality is fluid and changes over time. And so why wouldn't the labels we use to describe our sexuality also change over time if that feels right to us? Now, I have a caveat. I do believe it's best and important that we are sincere and not performative with our usage of orientation and gender labels as an honor to everyone, right? I wouldn't take on a, a, a label of orientation or gender to be trendy. Uh, if I were to call myself trans, for example, and I'm not trans, then I would be minimizing and erasing the experience of people who genuinely have gone on a life journey to arrive at their transness. And so, again, I think sincerity is important, but that aside, anyone can change their orientation at any time. And so, of course, of course, our orientation has to do with our upbringing because our upbringing is part of who we are as people, both the things we loved and the things that we overcome. And Ellen, in your question, I hear that you overcame challenges, and good for you. I am so proud of you. And so naming and owning your orientation today is part of you taking agency regarding your sexuality, and it is perfectly okay for that agency to include what you have overcome. So sometimes when people are asexual, if we look at, for example, AEDP, Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy's model of emotionality, then yeah, it's possible one could ex experience the world as an asexual because of emotional regulation strategies that you've used to survive. And that's fine. Good for you. Some people who identify as asexual, they go through trauma therapy and they find what? There's a lot more arousal and sexual feelings there than they ever thought possible because they were stigmatized or shamed over notions of sex and sexual arousal as children. And so their nervous systems learned to suppress that. And so those people might move into some other orientation label. They might not. They might remain asexual. They might figure out that they're not interested in sex with other people, but they do. They are. Uh, they have sexual feelings and sexual arousal. Other people don't. Other people are just asexual. That could be psychological in origin. It can be biological in origin. It can be both. What matters, what is important, is not whether your orientation comes from a reaction to external sources or not. What is important is that your 
sexual orientation makes you feel empowered. It makes you feel in control of your body. It makes you feel like you have ownership over your feelings. And sexual arousal is one of our feelings. You're okay, Ellen. You're good. Like every person of every sexual orientation, the way you relate to your sexuality is just fine as long as you do not violate the consent or body autonomy of other people. That's it. That's the boundary. So, if you identify as asexual today, do so powerfully. And if you still identify as asexual 70 years from now, I celebrate that. And if you realize at some point later, oh gosh, there's more to it. Of course there is. Nobody perfectly conforms to even the myriad of sexual labels for orientation that we have created today. We are all so different. You know, I am a cisgender man. But I'll tell you the truth. I've read every, I think every possible label for orientation, none of them feel like they fit me. Just none of them. And I've read hundreds. None of them seem just right for me and the way I experience the world. And so I've learned that these words are just metaphors that we use to navigate our life experience. That's it. And this to me is the beauty of the LGBTQIA plus community. Because in their exploration of who they are and their advocacy, in their right to be who they are, we all learn that our older ways of speaking of sexuality, they're limiting and confining for everybody. They're limiting and they're confining for everyone. I mean, my gosh, what is it? What is a straight person? What is what even is that? <laughs> I just I don't understand. Ellen, I just celebrate you being you, owning you, and caring for you. And as you come to terms with your childhood. The main thing I want you to know is that you are okay. There's nothing wrong with who you are or how you relate to your sexuality. And the other thing I want you to know is you are not alone. Take care, friend. Hi, Mike. My name is Rebecca, and I love the show. I was wondering if you've spoken before about the limitations of science. As I became scientifically literate in the last years and simultaneously deconstructed my faith, I came to put a great deal of trust in science. However, in the last couple of months, I have come to realize and understand the limitations of science. It's both liberating to not have to serve science as my new God, but it's also a little disappointing to not have something more solid to rely on. Learning about my Enneagram 6 
helped me notice how I wanted science to be something I could blindly rely on. Oh well, I guess I just have to continue to use my imperfect judgment. Anyway, I was wondering if you have talked about this before. Thanks so much. Bye. I am almost certain I've talked about the limitations of science before on this program, but I don't know. I don't know the back catalog all that well. <laughs> I just talk every week and then forget about it. Uh, and regardless, it's at least been long enough that it's worth leaning into again. What a wonderful question. What a, a timely question for the world we are in today. Thank you. Because there are two things that concern me. Number one is the anti-intellectual, anti-fact miasma we find ourselves in. Where we've utterly rejected the findings of science. That's my main concern epistemologically in the world today. But second to that is the reaction, which is this strange kind of scientific fundamentalism that, let us be clear, is not as big a deal as scientific denialism, but still a problem, because both fundamentally entail a misunderstanding of what science even is. As you have so eloquently stated in your question, science is not a worldview. It is not meant to be a worldview. It is a terrible worldview. It doesn't function as a worldview. So, gosh, what do we do with that? Well, we understand science is not a moral philosophy. And science is not a worldview. And it isn't supposed to be. And also, science isn't perfect. So many people are raised in worldviews as children where their worldviews are described as perfect to them by their caregivers. That certainly happened to me growing up as an evangelical Christian. I was told that my worldview was perfect. Now, I might not understand it perfectly, but the Bible as a way of understanding the world was perfect. What high expectations to place on a worldview that people use. Okay, so science isn't perfect, and science isn't meant to be. Science is meant methodologically to find its own flaws. <laughs> That's its job. Science also has problems around inclusion. Science is very white. It's very male. It's very economically privileged. So that critique of science is necessary to name so that we can mitigate it. But even with all those limitations, and this is critically important, science is still very trustworthy when we understand what it does and does not do. When science speaks to matters that science addresses, it tends to be among the most authoritative tools human beings have access to. So what is science? Well, science is a methodology. Science is a methodology we use to ascribe the likelihood that any given claim about the natural world is true. What does that mean? Well, it means that science does not prove anything. You can prove something in math, but you can't prove anything in science. All knowledge that science offers is provisional 
and gets ascribed or assigned a degree of confidence. How likely is it that a given claim is true or untrue? That is the work of science. How likely? It's never 100%. It's never 0%. It will be somewhere in between a maximal and minimal value. And the way science ascribes confidence in ideas is not rational thinking. It's not through debate. Science assigns confidence through observation and or experiment. Those are the tools of science. You can use other tools like philosophy or, or rational thinking to come up with a hypothesis. You can test the science. But if you want to demonstrate something scientifically, you've got to have observation or experiment. So, for example, today in very far-flung realms of theoretical physics, we're starting to veer more into the realm of philosophy because our ability to think about and mathematically model ideas has so far run ahead of our ability to build particle accelerators to test things. But science is only science when we test our hypothesis via observation and or experiment. Notice, we can test ideas with observation. It does not simply have to be experiment, which means science can talk about how the universe was formed. We can't run an experiment and create a new universe, certainly not today, but we can observe the universe itself and in doing so, learn about the universe's origins, okay? Observation and or experiment. Now, there are principally four primary, widely understood limitations to the scientific method, and they are these. Number one, science does not make moral judgments. It doesn't speak to what is right or wrong. Science does not make aesthetic judgments. It doesn't say what is beautiful or not. Science does not tell you how you can use scientific knowledge. You can use science to learn that you can split the atom, but science doesn't tell you if you should make a bomb when you do that, or you should make a power plant, or you should make neither, or you should make both. Science won't speak to that. It will only tell you that it's possible and how to do it. And finally, science does not draw conclusions about the supernatural because, by definition, the supernatural doesn't get observed and does not show up in experiments. Okay. Now, some people would then presume that the supernatural does not exist, and that is a valid presumption. However, it is not a scientific presumption. You are using a worldview and a moral philosophy and a and an epistemology to make that ruling. And that's an important distinction. Now, I'm a person that tends to be pretty skeptical about the supernatural. (laughs) Um, But my skepticism, although based in science, it is not a scientific claim. And I want to be really clear about that. And I don't think that's like science PR. I actually think that's really, really necessary. Um... Because it's the same grounds by which I say science, you know, hasn't made a ruling or or ascribed effectively a probability to something like M-theory, a a modern variation of superstring theory. 
Because what? There's no experiment or observation there yet. There's just mathematically informed philosophy. And I think that's what lets science work so well, is tightly confining science to that which can be observed or revealed via repeatable experiment. I hope that answer helps. Okay, one more question this week. Here it goes. Hi, Mike and team. Long question here. Sorry about that in advance. But it's about taking a second detailed look at vaccines. I know you answered an anti-vax question way back in 2015, which was great. And I also know the anti-vax movement seems very easy to scientifically dismiss. I hold that view and agree with your previous episode on the subject. However, today a friend of mine made some alarming claims about vaccines that had me scratching my head. Things that I'd never heard before and that are not uh, the typical anti-vax arguments. He said things like, there have never been proper double-blind studies done on any vaccine, that only 1% of vaccine reactions are reported by doctors, that 2 to 10% of vaccinated people still don't make antibodies, that vaccinated people can still carry and spread the disease they were vaccinated for, and the studies are not being and that studies are not being done to look into vaccines causing inflammation or increased aluminum in the brain, potentially causing Alzheimer's. He gave this video as a source. And then there's a link to a YouTube video, which I will not have in the show notes of Ask Science Mike this week because spreading conspiracy theories is precisely how they spread. Anyway, back to the question. It seems to me that the main issue here is trust. My friend and the doctor in the video both seem to look at personal experience of patients and certain statistical correlations and have decided that the mainstream medical community must be corrupt and are hiding some big conspiracy. Yet, when I look up pro-vaccine documentation, all I see is the words, there is no evidence, but I've never seen any documentation of the details of the studies. So when a source like the New York Times or Bill Nye or even you on your your show say there is no scientific link, there is still the question of, can I trust that source? So after all, my question is this. How can we trust that every vaccine is as beneficial and effective as another? I think this is especially important in an age where nuance is often ignored in favor of general statements and when legislation is beginning to crop up that would mandate all vaccines. Where can I find detailed scientific data behind the widespread acceptance of vaccines? Where can I find the detailed data that would refute the claims of the doctor in the video. Thanks. Love you and your show. Dan in Illinois. Well, I say that every sincere question gets an honest and non-judgmental response. And Dan, you are making me stick to that here, as are the patrons who voted for this question to be on this week's program. Because listen to me, folks. We talk about sex and sexuality on this program. We talk about religion. We talk about race. We talk about, people ask me about psychedelic drugs and illegal substances, and I answer all those questions. And when I answer all these questions, everybody's cool. (laughs) I don't get a lot of hate mail, not anymore. I did very early in the program, but that's all kind of stopped. And uh, we seem to have an easy time 
sharing different viewpoints and different ideas among this audience, which is amazing because this audience is wild. We have people, we have 19 year old people listening and we have 90 year old people listening. We have a uh, literal Marxists and anarcho-communists listening and we have uh, conservatives of all stripes, political, religious, and economic. We have libertarians. We have straight folks. We have queer folks. We have Christians and atheists and Muslims and Buddhists. I mean, it's just, it's a cornucopia of human beauty in this audience. And the only time my inbox, both digital and physical, explodes is when I touch anti-vax questions. And so guess what? I'm going to answer this question and I'm going to get a lot of mail. And I'm going to get a lot of newspaper clippings. And I'm going to get a lot of links to YouTube videos. And here's the thing. Personal friends this week are going to call me and talk to me about my troubling views on the anti-vax movement. So I am buckling my safety belt and strapping in because I have to offer not just a non-judgmental response, but an honest one. Your question, the issues raised by your friend, the YouTube video in question, all of these things perfectly illustrate how conspiracy theories work. Because conspiracy theorists, and I'm sorry, that includes anti-vaxxers, are often unintentionally capitalizing on our justifiable suspicions of our institutions. The fact is, all across the world, our civic and political institutions, especially governments and corporations, have betrayed us and have failed us. But then our scientific institutions get conflated into that mess in what is one of the great tragedies of our times. And don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying institutions of science are per per perfect. I called that out in the last question. They are not. But they generally produce reliable, useful, and actionable information. So how do you undermine science? Well, science is hard to understand, and science is nuanced, and science requires a lot of specialized knowledge to interpret. And so, if you're a conspiracy theorist or an anti-vaxxer, you use a technique often called the Gish Gallop, which was a term coined by Eugene Scott of the National Center for Science Education way back in the 90s, named after the behaviors of a particular creationist named Dwayne Gish, who in formal debates would issue so many false claims in a short period of time that their opponent spent all of their time trying to refute those claims, and there were just so many there wasn't enough time. Basically, you can make manure faster than you can shovel it, right? And so if I watched that video, and I did, I watched that whole video by that doctor, and it is packed with dozens of misrepresentations or misinterpretations of scientific fact and medical literature. And if I were to take the time to refute them one by one, it would take weeks 
And in the meantime, your friend and other people who are anti-vaxxers will have an avalanche of even more low-quality claims for me to debunk. They can produce low-quality claims faster than I or anyone can debunk them. And this is how conspiracy theories work. This is why YouTube makes them so effective, because you can shovel and repeat questionable ideas, and you can cite sources. One, you can cite sources that are unreliable, and two, you can cite accurate sources, but sources that require technical expertise to interpret, and then, what? Misinterpret them. You can hijack the the tools of information literacy and use them against themselves in a way that is truly tragic. Here's why it doesn't work. I'm not even going to address the video. I'll, I'll, I'll speak to it briefly, but I'll just go with the claims you put in your message. Claim one, there has never been a proper, and the word proper was all capitalized, double-blind study done on any vaccine. Well, number one, that's false. The earliest vaccines did have full double-blind studies known as random controlled trials or RCT, randomized controlled trials. But once you have a vaccine that works and gets rid of a disease like measles or polio, it's actually unethical to get a control group of children who doesn't get that vaccine because you potentially expose them to what? Death or permanent impairment from those diseases. So at that point, you're right. Once we have a vaccine that really works against a deadly disease, we don't do RCTs anymore. But but RCTs are not the only type of study that can produce statistically effective means to assess the effectiveness of a given treatment. There are other methodologies that we use in the vaccine era to test for both effectiveness and for safety, Right? Well, gosh, the amount of precision, the amount of research I said to do for that one claim is a lot. And I already understand these things. Claim two, only 1% of vaccine reactions are reported by doctors. If you look that up, that is cited from one line of an obscure study that even in the study was provided without context or methodology. Okay, so we don't know. It's difficult to even examine whether that study that that claim is true or not, or how they arrived at that conclusion. But even if it is true, why might that be true? Because we know, for example, that a rash or a low fever following many vaccines is normal and something that can be reported. And so doctors, why would they take the time to report a rash or a fever in the context of a well-understood, often-used vaccine when we understand that those are routine side effects that aren't quality-of-life impairing and don't have long-term health consequences. If that statistic is true, and I'm not conceding that it is, it actually speaks to the safety of vaccines that doctors who specialize in what the care and treatment of patients they personally know, who have devoted their lives to the care of patients, They assess 99% of the time that side effects aren't worth reporting. Hmm. Interesting. And by the way, as I looked at one site that was an anti-vax site that then drew the conclusions from that, 
they made a series of unsupported assumptions and arrived at what I can only call statistical horse shit because they looked at the number of reported vaccine side effects or injuries per year or deaths per year and then multiplied by 100 to arrive at what they assumed was the real number, which, folks, is just not how science or statistics work. It is irresponsible and reckless. And, to be honest, just plain wrong. And I don't mean morally, I mean factually. Another claim, 2-10% to 10 of people don't make antibodies when given a vaccine. This one's actually true. <laughs> in, in an extreme case, especially a newer vaccine, yeah, 10% of people might not make antibodies in response to the vaccine, which is why public health policy is giving everyone, as many people as possible, a given vaccine because vaccines are designed to create herd immunity, not individual immunity. Oh, gosh. I mean, it's just... <sighs> and then the aluminum in the brain causing Alzheimer's. My gosh. Why would we look that up unless we saw increasing rates of Alzheimer's in conjunction with the application of vaccines, right? We, we need a re studies are expensive. We need a reason to commission them. This is, this is only a step removed from people that tell you antiperspirant causes Alzheimer's, and that's related to a fundamental misunderstanding of biochemistry. It's very simple. Sodium is a dangerous, volatile substance that will kill you. And chlorine is a dangerous, volatile substance that will kill you. But when you combine them, you get table salt, right? So you can have mercury or aluminum as an element in a compound, in a vaccine. It's not going to be absorbed into your body. It's not going to have an adverse effect. It's how biochemistry works. So it took me. 30 minutes to look up and refute three claims. About 10 minutes a claim. It's not a good usage of my time because all of those claims were total unsupported garbage. As is, almost without exception, every claim that I've ever researched that's been put forward by an anti-vaxxer, whether that's a dear personal friend or a listener of the podcast or a literal rando online. It's a gish gallop to flood your cognitive faculties with misinformation more quickly than you can provide quality information. And I have found over and over and over when I go point by point by point in refutation, anti-vaxxers never run out of misinformation to throw at me. Now, anti-vaxxers aren't bad people. Anti-vaxxers are typically adults who care a lot for their children. And they've been caught up in a conspiracy theory that is not only potentially dangerous for their children, but for public health in general. But before I get to that, let's talk about the doctor in the video whose name I am not going to share. I'm not going to give him the credibility that doctor made claims that for me as a science educator and college dropout were so obviously wrong. 
that I'm surprised anyone doesn't catch it. And I'm not a doctor. I'm certainly not an epidemiologist. One line where he talked about chemicals shown to cause problems in animal trials was so groan-inducing that I laughed out loud because, friends, there's a reason animal trials are an early part of research before we move into human trials because it turns out different species have radically different physiologies. Doctors are not epidemiologists, and doctors are not virologists, and doctors are, listen to me, less qualified to speak into those matters than are virologists and epidemiologists. Now, they're all more qualified than me. Any given doctor is more qualified than me to talk about vaccines, and an overwhelming number of doctors support vaccination because of the medical literature combined with their professional experience. Here's the facts about vaccines. Number one, they are low risk. They are not zero risk. Anti-vaxxers parade about some kind of, like it's some big revelation that there can be side effects to a medical treatment like a vaccine. We know that. That was discovered in studies and trials. So then why do we give vaccines knowing they have risks? Because the risks are extraordinarily low, especially when compared to the diseases that they prevent. This is the major, major insight I would love for everyone to contemplate as we talk about vaccines. I've got a link to an article in the show notes on this episode that looks at the effectiveness of vaccines over time. I'd encourage you to go have a look at figure two, which is the global annual reported cases of measles from 1980 to 2012. We used to have almost four and a half million cases of measles a year, every year. And now in a given year, we sometimes we have less than 100,000. Now measles has been coming back as the anti-vax movement has gained steam. And that's the problem. Because a measles vaccine, this is a scientific fact, is less risky than the measles for your health and your child's health. And the testing methodologies and regulations around vaccines is designed specifically to ensure that vaccine, that is true for every vaccine. Now, all vaccines aren't equally effective. All vaccines don't carry the same risk profile. But every vaccine that gets approved, the vaccine is less dangerous than the disease. This isn't hard. Chemicals aren't a bad word, by the way. Water's a chemical. People are 100%. Every part of your body is a chemical. There are no non-chemicals in the human body. Vaccines have had, in the data, one of the largest positive impacts on public health as any other intervention that humanity has done. 
They're not quite as effective as running water, cooking food, or sewers, but they're up there. One of the the cleanest slam dunks for medical science is vaccines. And listen to me, anti-vaxxers are almost universally affluent. And here's why. Anti-vaxxers take their personal anecdotes, their own life experience, and elevate it above the scientific method. Why? Because they throw measles parties, and their kids get sick, and their kids get better. Why? Because of their resource access. Poor communities and immunocompromised people are the ones who benefit the most from vaccines. Because we're seeing it right now with COVID-19, friends. When people have access to good medical care, diseases aren't as dangerous. But not everyone has access to good medical care. And so sadly, the implications of the anti-vax movement is what? Classism and racism. When affluent people, generally affluent white people, decide they're going to be anti-vaxxers, who suffers? Poor people in their country, immunocompromised people in their country, and children around the world because we rely on herd immunity to protect everyone. The change in outcomes from something like eliminating smallpox or measles is so much more dramatic in poor countries than in wealthy countries. Vaccines are a way that human beings can care for human beings, and they only work when they allow us to reach herd immunity levels of resistance to a given disease. When used well, we can literally eradicate dangerous diseases from the human population entirely. It is a matter of trust. You're right. I'm a science educator. Because of you all, I have the time in my life to do so much independent research and so much reading. And you may not have that kind of time, and I understand The volume of data supporting vaccines is enormous. Enormous. Where would you find it? In university libraries all over the world. In many cases available in digital formats. But to understand it all, you'd have to be a virologist or an epidemiologist. At the end of the day, we are making a choice. Do we trust specialized knowledge or not? And this is what I meant in the last question when an anti-science, anti-fact bias is one of the most dangerous threats our species faces. Because friends, it's not just vaccines, although that's a big deal. It's whether or not we wear masks during a pandemic. It's whether or not we cut climate emissions in response to climate change. The anti-fact orientation, so common in the world, but especially in the United States, potentially represents an existential threat to human civilization. I know less about vaccines than virologists and epidemiologists, and unless you're a virologist or epidemiologist, you understand less as well. So, of course, we should be informed. 
and we should do our homework. And we should understand that unless we're in a field of specialty, we're simply not qualified to refute the claims of a virologist or an epidemiologist. That doesn't mean they are, people of all specialties shouldn't be held accountable. They should. That's why independent media and reporting is so important. That's why the problems we have with reproducibility and in, in scientific research is a massive problem. The bias against producing and publishing negative results is a massive problem. Things that should be reformed in the sciences. Science absolutely needs its own reformation. But just because science has problems doesn't mean everybody with a camera on YouTube should be trusted in matters of climate and public health and pandemics. Y'all listen to me. This stuff is dangerous. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry if your child suffers from a health consequence that you ascribe to a vaccine. I truly am sorry for the emotional turmoil that you face. Or if you have a friend who has a child who they believe is suffering severe impairment from a vaccine. I'm sorry if your child has autism and you believe it is from an ac- a vaccine. But as an actual autistic person you're not doing me any favors and you're not doing your child any favors and you sure aren't doing poor people around the world and in your community a favor by bypassing one of the most proven and evidence-based medical interventions in the history of the human species we have got to get back to some basic shared epistemology on how we understand facts in the world. And I'm sorry, you can draw a straight line from telling people they don't have to trust fancy scientists about evolution and the Big Bang because it conflates the scriptures to climate change denial, to the anti-vax movement, to the flat earth movement, It's all the same fundamentally flawed epistemology. That's why I'm a science educator, friends. That's why the show Ask Science Mike exists. I grew up with a warped and broken epistemology. And it didn't just, it wasn't trivial. It wasn't just, it's not just trivial the way we understand the world because the way we organize into action together has the potential to save lives or cost lives, to preserve the balance of life on this planet or to disrupt it, both in our lives as individuals and as part of an ego web. That's why I'll be here every week to talk to you about your questions in your curiosity, and sometimes those conversations are hard, like when we talk about the anti-vax movement. But I believe it is necessary and essential for us to be healthy and whole as people and as a society to have these difficult conversations and to know whether you're an anti-vaxxer or not. I still care for you. I still support you. And I still hope that you and your family 
are happy and healthy and safe and well. Thank you for listening, my friends, and I'll talk to you again next week.